Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 176, long-duration mere flight NASA 7, Posledni Americanets, The Last American. Last time, we welcomed Space Shuttle Endeavor back to operational status, welcomed Dave Wolf back to Earth, and welcomed the view of some relaxing fish, even if it turns out that they may have been dead the whole time. The flight featured a fair amount of science, but the primary objective was the transfer of literally tons of logistics and experiments traveling in both directions through Endeavour's airlock. First and foremost on the transfer list was NASA astronaut Andy Thomas, who became the last American to live and work aboard the Russian space station Mir. The funny thing was, Andy Thomas was never supposed to fly to Mir in the first place. At least, that had never been the plan. Thomas had been asked to serve as Dave Wolf's backup, and since he was interested in seeing what Russia was all about, he agreed, never expecting to actually get a flight out of the deal. But when Wendy Lawrence's short stature caused her to be pulled from her own long-duration mission, everybody took a step to the left, Wolf into Lawrence's mission, and Thomas into Wolf's. Thomas said that the conversation with his family got decidedly quiet when he revealed that he would, in fact, be flying after all. So nobody had expected it, but I suppose that's why we have backups. And that's how it was that Andy Thomas became the astronaut selected to fly NASA 7, closing out the American presence on Mir. As we saw in the last episode, Thomas hitched a ride to Mir on Space Shuttle Endeavour, which breezed through a flawless rendezvous and docking. A minor hitch appeared when Thomas struggled to put on his Russian launch and entry suit, which would be necessary in case of an emergency evacuation of the station. But after a little spacesuit surgery, on either his suit or Wolf's, I'm not actually sure, he was all good to go, joining the Mir EO-24 crew. Thanks to an oral history interview that Thomas gave around six weeks after returning home, we have a lot of insight into his mental status throughout the mission, or at least his recollection of it. Right off the bat, the mission was an adventure, with Thomas finding that when launching from the mid-deck, the lack of a window means the only option is to imagine what's going on out there, which turned out to maybe be more dramatic than the actual view from the flight deck. Upon arriving at Mir, he went through the traditional shock at the state of the station. He had expected that it was going to be confined and crowded, but nothing can truly prepare a crew member for just how confined and crowded the aging space station was. Though Thomas admitted that you do eventually get used to it, and he never actually felt claustrophobic during the flight. One thing I was interested to learn about this flight was how Thomas mentally prepared himself for the lengthy mission. We've seen some pretty diverse approaches to long-duration spaceflight, even among just the six Mir flights that we've covered. Would Thomas overwork and drive himself into a funk like Blaha? Spend his flight wondering about the next disaster like Leninger? Or maybe bribe his Russian colleagues with Jello like Lucid? Thanks to the work of his predecessors, Thomas had a pretty clear idea of what to expect, and went into it with the idea that he wanted to have a good experience on both a personal and professional level. His thinking was that if he was having a good experience on a personal level, fulfilling his professional duties would be no problem. So with that in mind, the name of the game on this flight seems to be steady attention to detail, while also paying plenty of attention to his physical and mental health, which sounds like a pretty great approach to me. As he watched Endeavor fade into the distance, Thomas was sad to see his friends depart, but glad that life around the station would quiet down a little and he could begin to focus on his mission. Except, just kidding, because two days later, on January 31st, what's that outside the window? No, it's not Endeavour back for a surprise visit. It's Soyuz TM-27, 
carrying the next crew of Mir. After an uneventful approach and docking, the hatch opened and three men piled out, so I suppose we should introduce them. Commanding Mir Expedition 25 was Talgat Musabayev. Talgat Musabayev was born on January 7, 1951 in the village of Kargali in the Zambul Oblast of what is now Kazakhstan. He attended the Red Banner Aviation School in Riga, though I think back then it was called the Lenin Komsomol Riga Institute of Civil Aviation. Whatever it was called, he graduated with a specialty in aviation electronics. For the next 16 years, he worked in various roles as an engineer and commander for Kazakhstan's Civil Aviation Department, including as an aerobatic pilot. He was selected as a cosmonaut in 1990, spending four months on Mir in 1994. This is his second of three flights. Joining Musabayev on the ride uphill was EO-25's flight engineer Nikolai Buderin. We actually briefly met Buderin earlier when he joined Anatoly Solovyev in catching a ride to Mir on STS-71. But now that he'll be with us for several months, let's meet him properly. Nikolai Mikhailovich Buderin was born on April 29, 1953 in the village of Kurya in the Alatursky district of Russia. He graduated from the Moscow Aviation Institute with a diploma in mechanical engineering, which he then put to work at RSC Energia, where he had already begun employment. In 1989, he was selected as a cosmonaut, and as mentioned earlier, he served on EO-19 with our old buddy Solovyev, spending a few months on Mir in 1995. This is his second of three flights. Musabayev and Buderin were also joined by a short-term crew member, French astronaut Leo Ahartz. Just like Reinhold Ewald a few missions back, Ahartz would be flying up with the new crew, sticking around for the few weeks of the handover, and landing with the old crew. As such, I'm not going to get into Ahartz's background, but we'll see him again a little down the road for a lengthy stay on the ISS. Thomas's recollection of this period sounds similar to when the shuttle was still there. It was fun having so many people around, but the station felt crowded, and it was difficult to get into a groove with his work. His groove was further disrupted when yet another computer error led to yet another loss of attitude control on the station. Though compared to earlier incidents, this wasn't nearly as bad. The station's solar panels drifted off of the sun, reducing the electricity to onboard systems, but the gyrodynes didn't actually stop spinning. If I've got this right, they were unpowered, but they kept spinning from inertia. The result was that the crew were able to fix the problem pretty quickly by powering down some unessential systems and prioritizing the gyrodynes. Never a dull moment on Mir. Three weeks after the new crew arrived, it was time to say goodbye to the old crew. On February 19th, Anatoly Solovyev, Pavel Vinogradov, and Leo Ahartz all said their goodbyes and climbed into the old Soyuz and departed for the steppes of Kazakhstan. The re-entry was fine, but I'm sort of puzzled why they didn't delay for a day or two since they actually landed in the middle of a blizzard complicating recovery efforts. But I guess that's just how Russia does things. For Solovyev and Vinogradov, the landing wrapped up nearly 200 days in space. The next day, it was time for the usual reshuffle of Soyuz docking locations. The Mir program preferred to keep long-duration Soyuz spacecraft docked to the node at the front of the station complex, while leaving the Kavant 1 port at the back available for various progress resupply ships and eventually the next Soyuz. The three-man crew stuffed themselves into the Soyuz, undocked, and backed away from Kavant 1. But instead of puttering around to the other side of the station for a re-docking, they just watched as the ground commanded the entire station to rotate 180 degrees around the Crystal Perota axis. 
Once the slew was complete, the crew were now facing the node's docking port, despite not having gone anywhere, and were able to move back in for a simple redock. I'm not entirely sure what the reason for rotating the entire station was, especially considering just how much stress the attitude control system had been under lately, but it seems to have gone nice and smoothly. If I had to guess, I would say that this strategy was preferred because the station could slew using electrically powered gyrodynes, while the Soyuz would have had to burn propellant in order to move itself from port to port. And speaking of docking, just a few days later, Progress M37 returned from a lengthy free flight. Several weeks ago, it had been told to take a hike, freeing up the Kavant 1 port for the new crew to dock with their Soyuz. But rather than re-enter right away, it was just sort of parked in a nearby orbit. Ground controllers decided to bring it back, I think so the crew could stuff more garbage in there. After a thankfully uneventful automated rendezvous and docking, the crew opened up the cargo vessel. Unfortunately, during the three and a half weeks it was flying on its own, a garbage container inside apparently ruptured, and a foul odor flooded the station. Yuck. Now that the long-term crew of Musabayev, Buderin, and Thomas were in place, Thomas was finally able to settle into his day-to-day -day routine. Except, just kidding again. On February 26th, three days after the return of the Stinky Progress spacecraft, something happened that resulted in me writing in my notes, Are you kidding me? There was another fire. No, I'm not kidding you. Andy Thomas had just wrapped up exercising on a treadmill in the Crystal module when he drifted into the node, passing the entrance to the base block. He was startled to see thick, acrid smoke emanating from the Kavant 1 module, just like Jerry Lininger had seen nearly a year earlier. Thankfully, this was not being caused by the oxygen-generating candle system, but rather the system dedicated to removing contaminants from the air, which is actually pretty ironic. The device had been misconfigured, and instead of venting into space, it was still exposed to the in-cabin atmosphere. It then overheated and caught fire. Luckily for the crew, the fire was contained to the unit itself, and apparently was just allowed to burn itself out, which is sort of a bizarre choice, but it seems to have worked. So, the fire itself wasn't actually all that bad, but it came with some alarming new information. First, the station's fire detection system had apparently been perfectly content to just let this one slide, not sounding the alarm at all. Since this happened during the day and the crew were able to quickly shut down the machine, this problem didn't end up being all that bad. But what if a more serious problem had developed during a crew sleep period? A missed alarm could have been far more serious. Second, the crew were asked to measure the air quality inside the station after the fire was extinguished. When they conveyed the results to the ground, they were told that their instruments must be having trouble, because the levels of carbon monoxide they were detecting were far too high to be accurate. I mean, the next day Andy Thomas was feeling lousy enough to don an oxygen mask, but surely it must just be instrumentation, right? Nope. The crew collected samples of the air that was measured later, and it was discovered that the carbon monoxide levels had been something like 20 times higher than safe limits and remained high for days. So I guess the instruments were right after all. Whoops. I'm starting to think that between the first fire, the stinky progress, and the second fire, maybe it would be best if the hatch between the base block and Kavant 1 was kept closed most of the time. Okay, but for real this time, 
with the shuttle crew gone, the Mir-24 crew gone, and the carbon monoxide gone, Andy Thomas was finally able to properly settle into his groove. Based on Thomas's recounting in his oral history, his stint sounds considerably more relaxed than some of the earlier ones. The crew would typically begin work around 9am, and continue until 7pm, but with a break in the middle for exercise and lunch, when they'd usually eat together so they could chat. And of course, they'd gather in the base block for communication passes with the ground. Thomas's main work was mostly done in Perota, and focused on the 27 different experiments carried up on the shuttle. As always, these touched on a variety of different subjects, including Earth sciences, human life sciences, microgravity research, and ISS risk mitigation. In good news for the science, but sort of bad news for an interesting story, the science seems to have hit no major hitches. The biggest problem seems to have been the formation of bubbles in the biotechnology system co-culture experiment. But this was actually nothing new. It was giving John Blaha trouble all the way back on NASA 3. I'm betting that the most unpleasant experiment was one where Thomas had to collect his urine so scientists could study if all the bone loss from weightlessness put astronauts at risk of developing kidney stones. Delightful. I thought it was interesting that in his own blog-like letters home, Thomas also experienced the same issue as Wolf, in that he just kept losing stuff. As fun as zero gravity is, it's not the most conducive to getting stuff done. He said that he would turn his head for a moment, and then something that he left floating would be gone. Sometimes it had actually drifted off, but sometimes, like Wolf, he just couldn't see it. His brain would instinctively scan any surfaces that appeared horizontal to him at the moment, before he would remember that there was no reason for the missing objects to be in those places. But with a little effort, he eventually had a nice collection of tethers, velcro, and spare pens and pencils set up in his workstation in Perota. While a smooth mission is what every astronaut hopes for, Thomas did admit that the flight could get a little monotonous. Because of that, he emphasized the importance of recreation. He said, quote, Recreation is very important, because that's how you regenerate yourself and keep charged up to get the work done and to fulfill the requirements of the mission under these very trying circumstances. Later adding, Because you can't physically escape the environment, but psychologically you can. Because of that, Thomas arrived with a solid amount of entertainment to help recharge during his off time. There was the usual fare, such as cassette tapes and CDs with a variety of music, along with a decently large collection of VHS tapes with movies and recorded sports games on them. And of course, Thomas enjoyed frequent correspondence with friends and family on the ground, both over the radio and via email. He said he actually preferred email because voice communications were so fleeting while an email could be reread and he could take his time crafting a response. Not all relaxation time was electronic in nature, though. Thomas tried his hand at a guitar that was on board the station, only to discover that playing a guitar in weightlessness is actually somewhat challenging because the instrument no longer rests in your lap as you play. He also drew some sketches of scenes around the station and out the windows. He said that while he was proud of his sketches, they weren't all that remarkable but one reason he enjoyed them was that he found them to be so engrossing that suddenly he'd realized he had been completely absorbed in one for hours. And of course, as Shannon Lucid would point out, for non-electronic entertainment, you can't go wrong with a good book. Among the ones that Thomas read while whizzing around the earth was Huckleberry Finn, which he had always wanted to get around to reading. But the recreational activity that caught my eye was a certain CD-ROM. 
As someone who has played video games pretty much his entire life, I was extremely interested to learn that Andy Thomas had flown to Mir with a PC video game among his entertainment options. Of course, in early 1998, there was already so much to choose from. Would he go with one of my favorite games, XCOM UFO Defense? It seems like it would be on brand. Or maybe something a little more real-time, with a game like Doom or Quake. What better way to take out the frustrations of unwanted bubbles in a biotechnology experiment than to shoot a cyber demon? Or maybe even some good old-fashioned adventure games like The Secret of Monkey Island, something a little more tolerant of using a laptop nub to control the mouse. The answer was... none of these. Thomas chose Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time. This collection of mini-games and full-motion video lives up to its name. It comes from that multimedia CD-ROM era, where you didn't really have to be much to call yourself a game. And, well, of all the video games that exist in the world, it certainly is one of them. I'll include a link to a gameplay video in the show notes and on the show's Twitter page so you can judge for yourself. But the reason I'm giving this terrible game so much attention is that as far as I can tell, this is only the second video game ever flown to space, and the first by an astronaut. You've got about five seconds to guess the first game in space. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> that is right. It's Tetris. Of course, it is. Specifically, Tetris for the Game Boy, which according to the Guinness Book of World Records, was flown to Mir by cosmonaut Alexander Serebrov in 1993. And of course, when not reading about Huckleberry Finn or puttering about in the Monty Python game, there was always food to enjoy. Thomas had high praise for both the American and Russian food, in particular saying, The soups are outstanding, and the juices are just marvelous, and there's plenty of it. On March 4th, Thomas prepared to have the entire station to himself as Musabayev and Budarin suited up for a trip outside. Unfortunately, they didn't quite get there. As part of the updated egress procedure with the problematic hatch, the crew were required to use a wrench to turn ten latches. Nine of them opened for the crew, but the tenth remained stubbornly closed. It remained so closed that Musabayev broke not one, not two, but three wrenches trying to open it. I'm not sure if I should be impressed by Musabayev's strength or unimpressed by the quality of the wrenches, but either way, the heads of the wrenches just snapped off. Ground control told him to stop, presumably before he broke every wrench on the station. They would just have to wait until Progress M38 arrived with some specialized tools. This was actually kind of a big deal. Obviously, it was a problem since it held up the goal of the EVA, which we'll get to in a little bit. But it also means that no EVAs were possible at all, even if it was an emergency. With all of the ports of the node occupied, Kavant 2 had the only airlock on the station. I guess they could have maybe sent Progress M37 away and moved the Soyuz from the node back to the port on Kavant 1, but that's not something you want standing between you and your emergency EVA. So I guess we'll just wait and hope. A couple of weeks later, Progress M38 launched successfully, and M37, aka Ol' Stinky, was sent off to a fiery demise. Two days later, Progress M38 docked after a mostly nominal approach. Commander Musabayev saw something he didn't like in the final approach, and took over manual control with the Toryu, but since it was only around 20 meters away from the station, docking under manual control was no problem. Progress M38 was actually pretty interesting, because it carried some external cargo that we'll get to in just a few moments. 
I was curious what it actually looked like. So I went to an image search engine and put in Progress M38 photo. And instead of the spacecraft, I got a bunch of weight loss progress photos of males aged 38. Oops. To the crew, Progress M38 meant the arrival of the tools that would enable the upcoming set of EVAs, as well as some welcome treats from the ground. Instead of stinky garbage, the aroma of fresh apples greeted the crew, along with some digital photos, a CD player, and some Beatles albums. And we'll get to those EVAs in just a second, but in between the progress docking and the first spacewalk was a notable milestone. On March 22, 1996, STS-76 had launched carrying NASA-2 astronaut Shannon Lucid. Well, it was now March 22, 1998, and in all that time, at least one American had always been in space. Two years of continuous presence in space is a pretty notable achievement, so congrats to all those who made that happen. Alright, but now that we have the proper tools, it's time to get to work on those EVAs. We've actually got a grueling batch of five EVAs in a pretty short amount of time. For a lot of these spacewalks, I found some fun little details courtesy of Chris Vandenberg, who was again listening in to the communications thanks to Russia's use of the Altair-2 geosynchronous communication satellite. It's a shame that I only found Vandenberg's mere news updates for these last two stints, because there's all sorts of interesting details and commentary in there, but I guess better late than never. On April 3rd, Musabayev and Buterin succeeded in getting the hatch open, and crawled out onto Mir's exterior. The main goal of this spacewalk was to basically do some prep work for other spacewalks to follow. There was a desire to add bracing to Spectre's damaged solar array, strengthening it. But first, they had to prepare the worksite, setting up handrails, foot restraints, and so on. The six-and-a-half-hour spacewalk hit no major issues except for one. Partway through the EVA, Commander Musabayev suddenly stopped responding. Some period of time later, I've seen both several seconds and a few minutes listed, he began responding again. It seems that he had accidentally turned off the power supply to the suit, losing comms, cooling, CO2 scrubbing, ventilation, everything. He managed to get the suit powered up again, but it was a pretty scary moment. A few days later, they were back at it again, heading outside to finish installing the support brace for Spectre's solar array and take care of a few other things. They were able to finish bracing the solar array, but the task took longer than expected, leaving less time for the next items on the list. But it didn't matter anyway, because ground controllers suddenly asked them to quickly wrap up the spacewalk and get back inside. The reason for ending the spacewalk early was actually related to their next task. Outside of Kavant 1 was a 14.5 meter long girder, topped with the VDU Attitude Thruster. VDU stands for something in Russian, but please don't make me attempt to read it. Those who paid attention in physics class will know that the benefit of putting a thruster out on the end of a long girder was that it increased leverage and allowed the thruster to exert more torque on the station while using less force, saving fuel. The remaining EVAs were actually dedicated to replacing the aging VDU. The new one was that exterior cargo I mentioned on Progress M38. But in the middle of the EVA, the ground reported that the VDU had run out of fuel, right this moment causing the station's attitude to drift. The Russian crew hustled back inside to fix the situation. But here's something sort of odd. While this is apparently still the official story, and repeated in several sources, there's some doubt that it's actually what happened. 
One source hints at this by reporting that the EVA was ended early due to what was misdiagnosed as VDU fuel depletion. But a familiar name provides more details. James Oberg, a Russian spaceflight expert who we saw testify at the Mir safety hearings before Congress, says that in reality, the ground sent an incorrect command up to the station. Then, not realizing their error, they mistakenly attributed the drifting attitude to a lack of VDU fuel. As always with the Russian side of things, I'm not entirely sure what the truth is here, so I'll leave it up to you to judge. In any case, the truncated spacewalk lasted 4 hours and 23 minutes. Five days later, it was time to suit up for a third time. As Thomas once more watched from inside, Musabayev and Buderin crawled out onto Kvant 2's exterior and made their way over to Kvant 1 to get to work. On this spacewalk, they basically wrapped up their previous spacewalk, discarding some unneeded equipment and disconnecting the old VDU. Though I'm sort of confused why it was okay to take down the old VDU if its contribution to attitude control was so important that the last EVA had to be cut short. Like, what was the plan? Hey, don't throw away the VDU. The VDU stopped working. Whatever. Chris Vandenberg noted something that made me laugh, but also sort of confused me. Apparently, Commander Musabayev wanted Thomas to observe and take photos as the old VDU was jettisoned. Thomas did so, but due to the angle of departure and the limited windows, was only able to watch it for a few minutes. According to Vandenberg, quote, Musabayev did not like this and did not hide that verbally. Let us hope that Andy neither heard nor understood this. <laughs> what? Was Musabayev upset that Thomas couldn't see through walls? Anyway, six hours and 25 minutes later, they were back inside. Six days later, on April 17th, they were back outside, doing some final prep work for the new 700kg VDU. This involved setting its girder at a specific angle and bolting it into place to make the final VDU replacement easier, along with dismantling and storing some other trusses for future use. After six and a half hours outside, the spacewalk came to a close. And finally, on April 22nd, the duo headed out for one last time, attaching the new VDU to the end of the girder and moving the girder back up to its vertical position. Or I guess horizontal position, depending on how you want to think about it. With the new fully-fueled VDU in place at the end of the girder, Mir regained enhanced attitude control about its long axis. Not counting the several hours of troubleshooting on the first failed EVA attempt, the five spacewalk series added up to just over 30 hours outside the spacecraft. Andy Thomas later said that he would have liked to try a spacewalk of his own, and he would later on another flight, but also that 30 hours of spacewalking is hard, hard work, which he did not envy. One sort of funny side note on the EVAs, According to Chris Vandenberg, the Russians happened to use a similar radio frequency as a nearby airport. This was a nuisance for Vandenberg, since sometimes the airport traffic clashed with the space-based traffic he was trying to listen to. But it also occasionally was a nuisance for the Russians, who apparently would sometimes get snatches of conversation from ground crews at the airport. And during one of these EVAs, Vandenberg reported that for the first time, someone on an airport ground crew realized this and radioed up, Dasvidanya. I can only imagine the reaction of the Russian crew. As I mentioned earlier, this was a pretty trouble-free few months on Mir, even if we did have that one minor attitude control problem, and of course, the second fire. But really, all the hard work of the previous crews must have been paying off, because for the most part, it was smooth sailing. So it was pretty funny that when right near the end of the flight, just as Andy Thomas was about to do a video interview with the press about his trouble-free flight, 
The attitude control computer again had a problem, and the station slewed off the sun. In what Thomas called unbelievably bad timing, they had to cancel the interview about their problem-free flight in order to solve a serious problem. Actually, the stakes were a little higher than just a missed press interview. Space Shuttle Discovery was on the pad and planning to launch in just a few days to retrieve Thomas. If Mir's attitude was drifting, rendezvous would not be possible. Thankfully, after a day and a half or so, control of the station was re-established and everything was back to normal. That launch was delayed by five days due to ground crews needing a little more time to prepare the shuttle, but given the timing of the attitude problem, it may have been lucky after all. We'll cover the details of STS-91 in a couple episodes, but for now, we'll say that it arrived at the station on June 4th with a bunch of new supplies and equipment, but no replacement astronaut. A few days later, Thomas said his goodbyes to his Russian colleagues, took one last look around the station, and moved over to the shuttle. Once the hatches were sealed and Discovery departed, no American would ever again float foot on the Russian space station. Thomas later described his departure, which I'll just read in a bit of an extended quote. Quote, Perhaps one of the most moving moments, though, was as we drew further and further away. We went into the night side of the planet, and I could see the stars and the running lights of the station were on. You couldn't see the station, all you could see was the lights flashing, and they were just going off into the distance these flashing points of light fading out slowly. That was kind of an emotional moment, because I knew that would be the last time I would see it. Ever. After returning to Earth from his nearly 132 days in space, Thomas said that while none of his family members had expressed any concerns about his safety when he announced he would, in fact, be going to Mir, there sure was a lot of relief expressed when he came home safe and sound. With his year-and-a-half Russian adventure over, Thomas turned his attention to living without a schedule for once and turning his new house into a home. Don't worry, though, we'll see more of Andy down the road. And that was it for the Shuttle Mir program. I'll have more things to say in upcoming episodes, since we still have to cover the flight of STS-91, the last shuttle mission to Mir, and I'm going to do a little retrospective on the entire program. But we're all done with long-duration crews for now. But before we get to STS-91 and a Goodbye Mir episode... Next time, we once again hop back in time a little bit to see what the space shuttle was up to while Andy Thomas was flying around in Mir. With STS-90, Space Shuttle Columbia is back on the launch pad with our old pal Space Lab in the payload bay for one last flight. So it's time to drift down the tunnel and get nervous. I mean, get to know the nervous system. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.